Today is the 4th of July in the U.S., and it's certainly an interesting holiday to observe as someone who's not American working very closely with Americans. I figured today would be a two-part. One, we'll talk about the American dynamism arm of Andreessen Horowitz, which is the more socially acceptable version of the pro-America stance that Silicon Valley has taken. And then we'll take our left turn into something more controversial. The most simple definition is it's companies that support the national interest. So it's everything from companies that sell directly to government, like aerospace and defense, these classic industrial sectors that have been supporting government since the you know, mid-20th century, but then also things that every citizen cares about and takes part of. So education, housing, transportation, infrastructure, these really big categories that we, when we look back through kind of the history of technology, there's been so much technological innovation, but at the same time, the last 30 years of software really hasn't touched a lot of these physical spaces. And so what we noticed through our portfolio is that some of the most important companies, some of the largest companies actually fall into this category that's outside of consumer technology and it's outside of enterprise technology. It's outside of these categories that sort of venture capital has found themselves sort of creating, but these become big companies that affect most people in the country. So the kind of broadest definition is these are companies that support the national interests. Oftentimes they sell to government. Sometimes they compete with government. Other times they're just heavily regulated by government, but they touch everyone. And so we're excited to build a practice around this thesis, but also because we feel like the tailwinds are unique for this moment that we're in, especially coming out of COVID. And Catherine, does that include things that support the national interest that aren't necessarily sort of defense or foreign policy related? I'm thinking healthcare, I'm thinking education, big swaths of the American economy and American time spent domestically. Definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, education and housing are, you know, two areas that I think venture capital hasn't touched as much as, say, healthcare. Like, if you look at, like, the last 10 years, digital health has just grown tremendously. And we have, you know, we have a separate bio and health fund. But the same can't be said for education and housing. And education is one of these things that I think coming out of COVID, people really realize that we are still operating on a 19th century model. And that when the kind of world had to shut down, there were not that many good solutions for the vast majority of Americans to educate their children, whether it be K through 12 or things like higher education. One of the things we are noticing coming out of COVID is that there's just a tremendous founder appetite for innovating on a model that's really a 21st century model of how we're going to educate people. I know that that's going deeper into the thesis now, but we really do see these big categories that can be transformative that are oftentimes funded by government as needing the help of technologists and private sector in order to transform some of these categories. So everything you're saying in some ways sounds a little bit like, how could you possibly argue with that? This all seems obvious. Of course we want prosperity and at least those of us in America, the American way to be as prosperous as possible and for as many people around the world who want that sort of lifestyle to have that sort of lifestyle, freedom, democracy, that those sorts of things, free markets. What are the counter arguments? Why is this not a no-brainer and why are you a little bit out on a limb in our industry being a person who is beating this drum? Yeah, because I think these are hard sectors. The counter argument to investing in the physical world is that it's not pure software. You know, I think the argument against investing in defense, the argument against investing in a lot of these physical sectors is one, they've been around for a long time. And so there's usually a lot of regulatory capture. We can get into kind of what the defense sector looks like and why it's so difficult to innovate in defense or, you know, in cases of transportation. Like these are important large swaths of the economy, but there's entrenched interests, there's large players. So it's always been harder. 
the kind of history of Silicon Valley, as you all know, and, and many of the episodes that you've done, it's like a lot of people innovate on the things where there's not an existing sector. Sometimes it's a lot easier to innovate in the virtual world than the physical. So I think there's sort of been a focus on how do we build some of these big sectors of the economy where there aren't entrenched initiatives, where software plugs in perfectly, where the economics look perfect. And I think these companies are just harder to build. As we like to say, like these companies go deeper down the J-curve. They often don't look that good at Series A. The J-curve, of course, being an initial investment in venture capital. You know, it's going to look bad. You're going to, your IRR is going to go negative as your investing period before the returns come. But yeah, so I love that deeper on the J curve. Yeah. I mean, you look at SpaceX and SpaceX is one of the most important companies, one of the largest private venture back companies. And yet for the first 10 years of SpaceX, there was a lot of fear and a lot of worry that investors wouldn't necessarily see a return. You know, it was often talked about. It's like you destroy three rockets before the fourth actually works. And there was a ton of sort of questions even until very recently around the business model of SpaceX. And so I think for a lot of these companies, they take extraordinary founders. Sometimes they have some technical risk. Sometimes they require more capital up front. Sometimes they have longer periods of how they'll have to stay private or how they'll be venture backed. But ultimately, they are such broad swaths of the American economy, as you've said. And also they become holding companies earlier. Like this is something we can get into about like why these companies are a little unique. But a lot of times, if you're looking at companies in consumer enterprise, you'll see three or four different competitors going after a similar market and they're all competing. And oftentimes you see one or two companies that look alike that are able to go public and that's fine. These companies usually become holding companies pretty quickly and attract all of the talent. There's finite talent around things like aerospace. There's finite talent around things like defense. So you don't see as many competitors. And as I said, they are harder to build in the beginning, but towards like the middle part of these companies' trajectory, they're really just competing against themselves and really trying to compete against legacy incumbents. Well, this is good. So maybe before we dive into some example companies, specifics of the thesis itself, I'm curious, what was the intellectual process, maybe for you personally, but also I'm curious, like within A16Z, you have these, as a firm, these vertical practices now, which has been done in venture before, but not nearly to the degree that you all have, are doing it now. How did this vertical kind of originate? Did it start with Mark's uh, time to build blog post, uh, you know, at the beginning of COVID? Like, what does it look like within the firm of like, hey, I think we should create a vertical? Yeah, it certainly starts with its time to build. I mean, that was, I think, the impetus for everyone realizing that the story of Silicon Valley pre-COVID is very different than the story that is about to come. But I think we all very much believe that, that the world fundamentally changed. Anyone who doesn't believe that from a historical context or a technology context isn't paying attention. The world fundamentally changed with COVID and we'll be reaping those, both the positive aspects of it and the negative aspects of it for generations to come. So I think there was that understanding. But then I also think one of the observations that I had is that Silicon Valley is very good at understanding kind of consumer businesses. They're very good at understanding how to make businesses more efficient. But Silicon Valley has never touched government. The kind of narrative around how Silicon Valley works with government has always been like, try to stay as far away as possible. <laughs> Which is so ironic, given, you know, we covered so much of the origins of Silicon Valley on, on this show. And like, you know, Don Valentine was selling to the Department of Defense back in the day, right? Yeah. That's something that is just not understood in the modern history of Silicon Valley. And, and of course, you know, Silicon Valley was built on defense investment. But this sort of view that software could actually ever work with government or the DOD, I mean, it's just viewed as the procurement of these types of technologies is almost impossible. 
And so there has been sort of, I think, this sort of 20, 30 year sort of do not engage kind of modern wisdom from venture capital firms has been, it's just too hard. There's so much other stuff to do. There's so much other stuff to build. Let's make sure that we don't tick off the regulators in some way. And in some ways, like when you look at the geography of Washington versus Silicon Valley, I think that is part of the magic of Silicon Valley is that it emerged so far away from Washington. It emerged in a totally different part of the country with a totally different history. And it's sort of outside of the East Coast establishment or the Acela Corridor that's like very much understands how the world works. And so there is a reason why Silicon Valley has emerged in a way that it has. But I think my background, I, I had spent 10 years in Washington. It was sort of the center of my universe until I came out to Silicon Valley. And I was stunned by the fact that there was sort of very little overlap between what people in Northern California, this sort of haven we're talking about, and people in Washington cared about. And of course, when you look at it from a DC perspective, these markets are so large. They're the most important markets. That's why they're regulated. And because they touch everyone, why are we so afraid of working with them? And so I think that was always just a question, an intellectual question in my mind of, is it possible for some of these companies to actually do the work of government? And then I started doing these sorts of kind of research. I I wrote a piece for the Washington Post in 2018 about how actually it seemed like Silicon Valley was actually doing a lot of the work of government. They just didn't want anyone to know about it or talk about it. They didn't think of it in those terms. And it's everything from SpaceX and Palantir, which, you know, are companies that really were helping intelligence agencies or NASA, you know, the kind of classical realm, but also things like Lyft and Uber that were completely transforming public transportation in cities across America. Not to mention the the cloud providers. There was the big Jedi contract. Oh, absolutely. That's a whole other story because that was a a good example of, say, Google pulling out of working with government because they had employees who didn't necessarily want to work with the DOD. So, yeah, there was a lot of just, I think, events happening that made people realize that Silicon Valley is actually a lot closer to working with government that people realized. And that whether you think it's good or bad or, you know, there's a value judgment, I think, on it from a lot of sides. But whether you think it's good or bad, it's happening. It was already happening. Yeah. Yeah. And it happens in a very organic way. And it's definitely not going away for a lot of factors I'm sure we'll get into. Well, it's funny, even not thinking about the companies serving government as a customer, you know, take Palantir, for example. Let's say you run an experiment where you have a bunch of people doing and building very innovative things. And then over the course of 70 years, that compounding at a high rate. Well, at some point, that goes from being garage projects to creating a lot of the value and infrastructure in a society. And so at some point, these things have to come to a head because here we are, and I'm thinking about the time frame from 1950-ish to 2020-ish, a lot of the infrastructure that everyone outside the tech community uses in their day-to-day lives now are born of the tech community in Silicon Valley. And it's just, it's just the math. You're going to keep compounding that capital, that talent, those innovations And our way of life is now based on the things built in this community. Yes, this is also a function of, and this is one of the things that I think is actually kind of forced the government to say, okay, we're going to have to work with the private sector in a way that's probably a lot deeper than what we used to do in terms of a defense industrial base. Software is a revolution that is completely touching every aspect of society, but the people who are building the best forms of software are not going into government. And that is actually a radical change from how government used to work. It used to love to build internally. That was sort of the thesis is we need tanks and battleships and we can get those from the private sector. Uh, But we actually like to build our own internal tools. And so anyone who's a student of history of company building, that sort of thing is like, that is not what's happening in the best companies 
you can choose to build or buy, but like the vast majority of companies that are getting off the ground are using external tools. There's sort of a outsourcing is sort of a decentralization that's happening even in company building that we can get into. But like the government has not realized that in terms of how it procures software. And so if you talk to people who are in the bureaucracy of government, it's like their private life of catching the Uber to go home, the DoorDash so they can get food delivered. They have this complete normal consumer internet private life that all of us share. And then they go into government and it takes 30 minutes to start their computer. It's like being back in the 1980s. And it's one of the biggest frustrations because there's a lot of great, I would say, especially in the, you know, the DOD, I think is the best example of the most forward thinking part of the government that actually understands technology. I mean, this is the most frustrating thing for people to say, I'm living in a time warp when I go to work. And we can't understand that as people who are, you know, kind of in this modern tech ecosystem of, you know, we have these modern tools when we go to work, we're conversing right now and it feels great and it's easy and it's simple. Like that is just not how the government works. And so it's one of the last holdouts. To your point, we have this like mega theme on Acquired of don't do stuff that doesn't make your beer taste better. The origin of that quote was with Bezos when he was launching AWS at Y Combinator, you know, 15 years ago. But probably 70% of our sponsors here, you know, Fanta, Modern Treasury, Vouch, it's just in the water now that like, of course, the way you succeed, the way you build great products is you be really, really great at one thing. And then you use the whole suite of other products that are built in this ecosystem that are really, really great at everything else you need. Yeah. Even when we think about like, okay, why is the cost of starting a startup gone down tremendously? I mean, that is the case. It's like, you don't have to build everything from scratch anymore. You can buy. But the one place that still does that is government. It's actually incredible. And of course, like, how are they doing that? Well, they're using taxpayer dollars to build internally. So when we talk about the sort of why have defense budgets bloated, you know, even if we're looking at education and sort of the kind of major changes that are going to come from, like, why are these things that are civic goods so expensive now? It's because it is very difficult to use the technology that would actually make them cheaper. And you look at, I think there's that famous AEI graph on like everything has come down the cost curve, like televisions are less expensive. Everything is less expensive in consumer land, except for healthcare, except for housing and except for education. And it's really because technology has not touched those sectors and will not touch those sectors unless we do something about it. And there's mostly regulatory capture in those sectors. Yeah, I do think it is. We can talk about classic regulatory capture, but it is also this idea that like none of those sectors use technology yet. And so going back to sort of like, what is the thesis? If we truly believe software is eating the world, which we do, this is like the last holdout and it's such a massive holdout, but it's something where it's like, it is deeply tied to the physical world. It is not something that you can do just through the virtual world alone. Okay. That was the very jovial media trains response, diplomatic in all respects and couching defense as only one part of a broader reach from Silicon Valley to Washington. Um, this is the other, where this is coming from someone who's actually done it over the past 10 years and has incurred a lot of controversy over it. Don't really know what to think apart from, I do think that deontological pacifism probably doesn't work. You can't just renounce all weapons and expect there to be no violence because the other side has no such reservation. So my name is Palmer Lucky. I've founded two companies. My first was a company called Oculus VR that I founded when I was 19 years old and living in a camper trailer. I, thank you, thank you. Um, sold that to, for a few billion dollars to Facebook and then got fired a few years later and then started Andro because I wanted to work in the national security space for a variety of reasons. And I'll get into some of those reasons today. 
So the technology industry, for many years, has prided itself on being the first to understand where things are heading so that they can build the things that are going to be relevant for the future. On national security, though, and on the rise of our strategic adversaries, it was one of the last industries to realize where things were going due to a variety of ideological reasons, but also business reasons. Now, Silicon Valley didn't just predict the importance of defense in the 2020s. It largely took the exact wrong position, the opposite position. First of all, you have the obvious examples like big technology companies explicitly refusing to do work with the Department of Defense. Google is one big example, but the worst examples are really in the startups that don't exist because people didn't want to even get into such a controversial space, lest it ruin their careers. Um, you know, when I started Anderl, I had already sold a company for billions of dollars, and investors still didn't want to invest. I still had a tough time in a lot of meetings with venture capitalists, and none of the conversations with VCs that I had were about my ability to hire or execute or build products. Everyone believed that I could do those things, even the ones who didn't like me much. The vast majority of conversations that we had were about whether or not it was even ethically okay to ever build a company that would build weapons. And the people who turned us down, the ones who decided not to invest in Anderol, actually believed that we had a good team and good people and good product market fit. The issue is that they thought that it was inherently wrong to build tools capable of being used for violence because they believed that the idea of deterring violence through having a strong arsenal was fundamentally obsolete and itself wrong. Uh, even, you know, imagine how hard it would have been to raise money if I hadn't found an Oculus. It would have been impossible. Even after we raised money and got traction, the negativity continued. There was a really interesting uh, cover story in Bloomberg in 2019 that called us tech's most controversial startup. This was a year where TikTok was banning users for calling attention to the Uyghur genocide in, in China and banning users for posting homosexual content. This is a year in which Adam Newman paid himself tens of millions of dollars for the right to use the word we. It's a year that Uber was under a federal investigation for its workplace culture immediately after a board coup that ejected much of the leadership. It's a time where Facebook was getting hauled in front of Congress to testify. But of course, as a tiny defense company making a handful of purely defensive base security systems that committed the crime of building technology for the military, Andrew was the one that claimed the belt for the world's most controversial technology company. I'd say that the war in Europe has totally shattered the idea that we live at the end of history. Every few decades, we start to believe that economic ties have ended all prospect of war, and every few decades, we're reminded that this isn't true. That's a very popular idea, especially in D.C., that we live at what they call the end of history. It's this idea that economic ties and interconnections make the prospect of conflict fundamentally unthinkable, ignoring the fact that many people see this as a matter of destiny, not economics. In 1909, English economist and politician Norman Angell published an entire book called The Great Illusion, and it was entirely about how war in Europe was impossible, and that spending money on building militaries that could deter conflict was a waste of time that could be better spent building utopia. He specifically argued that any European country annexing another would be as absurd as London annexing Hertford, and the book was actually the number one bestseller in 1909. Now, we've had some version of this argument for a few decades now, ever since the Cold War started, and luckily a lot of people are waking up. But unfortunately, it's not because they've come to a reasoned decision based on the fundamental principles at play. It's because right now, supporting the military, supporting defense, and supporting Ukraine in particular has become the current thing. And in current year, current thing is the thing that you have to support, regardless of what you think of the underpinnings. 
Unfortunately, for issues like defense and national security, the stakes are too high and the relevant timeline is far too long for people to start caring about things at the moment that they need to start caring about them. So today I want to talk a little bit about why I started Anderil and why you should all think exactly the same way that I do. So why I founded Anderall. I thought that I would work on virtual reality for my entire life. I had no plans on leaving Oculus at all. And I love virtual reality. I loved virtual reality. I started Oculus as a teenager, and I would have been there for another 50 years. I said as much less than 30 days before I was fired. Uh, and there, there, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that, some of which I'll get into later. Uh, but the decision was made for me. I gave $9,000 against the wrong political candidate, and it was pretty unpopular in Silicon Valley. Before I worked on Oculus, I actually worked in an Army Affiliate Research Center on a program called BraveMind, which was an Army project to treat veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder using virtual reality exposure therapy, basically putting them into virtual reality environments that would set off their symptoms, and then under the guidance of a licensed therapist who's also in the simulation, they could be taught coping skills that would reduce their dependency on medication and medical aid. Uh, it was a really fantastic program. I wasn't doing anything important on it. I was just a lab technician, a, a cable monkey. But I got a lot of exposure to both the virtual reality uh, technology side, but also how broken defense procurement was, how slow it was, how old a lot of the technology was, how the incentives were totally misaligned. And ever since then, I'd always wanted to make a con- contribution to national security if I could. Just took a few years for the right, for the right set of circumstances to come up. The defense industry in America is fundamentally broken. Uh, Before even getting into the specific problems of our defense industry, the United States has the strongest commercial artificial intelligence industry in the world, followed closely by China. But at the same time, the United States military and the prime contractors that dominate the military-industrial complex have none of the right tools, talent, or incentives to apply autonomy to the systems they do. There's no reason to save costs because they don't get paid for making things that work. They get paid for doing work. And in a world where you get more prestige and more money by having more people working on bigger things, there's no reason to use autonomy to reduce costs and increase capability. The U.S. military is well behind the Chinese People's Liberation Army in the implementation of artificial intelligence. Um, There's more better AI in John Deere tractors than there is in any U.S. military vehicle. There's better computer vision in the Snapchat app on your phone than any system that the U.S. Department of Defense has deployed. And other countries are taking notice of this. Countries like Russia and China do not want to compete with us toe-to-toe with the tools that we have. People will make fun of China and say, oh, they, have a, they don't have a blue-water navy. They only have one aircraft carrier coming up on two. Uh, you, they could never fight us. The reality is that that's not where they're going to fight us. They're going to arm proxies, or if they engage directly, they're going to use technologies that give them an asymmetrical advantage in the areas where we are the least competent. These are the areas where they are putting a lot of their resources. The reason that Vladimir Putin is saying that the ruler of the world is going to be the country that masters artificial intelligence is not because he thinks that they are going to lose at this. It's because he thinks that that is one of the only ways that they're going to be able to get the best of us. Now, the people who are building technology for our military, the large defense primes, I won't name any names because I'm, I'm not, I, I, I don't want to rustle too many feathers in that area. You never know who's in the room. But the people who are building the technology for the United States military, the people who spend all their time, do not have access to the best talent. They do not have access to the people that the technology industry has largely had a monopoly on in areas like autonomy, artificial intelligence, sensor fusion, high-end networking. 
And then at the same time, the people who can build, who can build good software, the ones who do work in these technology companies, are largely prohibited from doing so. And even if they're working on something that the military buys, let's say all the people at Apple who are working on an iPhone that can be sold to the U.S. Air Force, that same iPhone is also being sold to Russian intelligence. That same iPhone is being sold to the Chinese Navy. Uh, working on technologies that help the United States don't give us a strategic or competitive advantage if everyone else is getting the exact same thing. Uh, the other problem to consider is that asymmetric technologies like artificial intelligence are almost certainly going to empower nations that we aren't thinking about today. Some of them are a little more obvious, like Iran. It was a close U.S. ally until the late 1970s, and today, obviously, is in a very different position. There's about a dozen countries in Africa, South America, and Asia that were they to acquire extremely advanced artificial intelligence, either through coincidence or by proxy arming, would almost certainly start to wage war on their neighbors in a very destabilizing way. It would have been a much surer bet for me to found a second unicorn in a different industry that wasn't so fundamentally broken. Uh, gaming, fast casual dining, fintech, I could have made some ape coins. But there have actually been more mattress unicorns than defense unicorns in the last 35 years. Uh, but I decided the best thing that I could do to try and solve this problem was to use the fact that I had a bunch of money and I had a bunch of credibility to do something that was hugely unpopular, to ignore the fact that people were belittling me for it, and try to convince a bunch of brilliant people to come along with me so that they wouldn't waste their lives spending augmented reality mustache emojis, and instead they could do some work for our armed forces. But it's worth looking at the past and realizing that this is a recent problem. It's not something that has been the case for a very long time. Um, Silicon Valley was largely built on the back of defense. In 1947, half of Stanford's engineering budget came from the Department of Defense. Fred Terman, Stanford Dean, brought DOD contracts and interest to the West Coast in a way that had fundamentally been limited almost entirely to the East Coast. And Silicon Valley helped power a lot of the things that are powering the modern military machine. In the 1950s alone, we built the Pentagon in... Well, sorry. I, 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 I have an error in my notes. This is wrong. Um, in the lead-up to the 50s and the early 50s. We built the Pentagon in 16 months. We completed the Manhattan Project in three years. We put a man on the moon in under a decade. And just between 1951 and 1959, we built five generations of fighter jets, three generations of bombers, two classes of carriers, nuclear-powered submarines, and ballistic missiles to go on top of them. If you look at the current state of the industry, we're lucky to do even one of these things in a decade. And I can't really blame the, the defense industry for not working with the DOD entirely. It's not just an ideological problem. It's also an economic problem. When the Cold War ended, the government really became a pretty terrible customer. The technology industry drifted away. Most engineers in Silicon Valley do not remember a great power conflict because they haven't lived in a world where a great power was an existential threat to the United States. And so you have a lot of people who are ideologically opposed to working with the military. Now, we could spend an entire talk. I only have a few minutes to talk today. We talk, uh, spend a whole talk talking about the ethics of defense and you know, what, what the reasonable critiques of the military are and how you can change what you build for them in a good way. But I'll, I'll, I'll throw out a factor that I think most people don't think about enough, even the people who do agree on working with the military. Um, there's a lot of companies in Silicon Valley and, and, and elsewhere who look at those employees who are ideologically opposed to working with the military, and they use them as a smokescreen 
pretending that it's principled opposition that drives their decision, when in reality, they want access to Chinese markets, they want access to Chinese investment, they want access to other countries that are tied into these things. And so they're able to use these people who are ideologically opposed to working with the military, which actually make up a pretty small fraction of the U.S. population, as a smokescreen for their real intention, which is to preserve access to those markets, preserve access to those capital um, our largest companies are not de- making these decisions based on what is best for the United States, certainly not what is best for the United States in the long term. They're largely making the decisions based on short-term ideas that are not based in any kind of long-term thinking. If you look at the recent CHIPS bill that Congress passed, saying that, that the United States government is going to put uh, $50 billion, $52 billion into building semiconductors in the United States. You have to compare that with the recent news that, well, it, it leaked. It wasn't, it wasn't news on purpose. Uh, but Apple has pledged to put $275 billion as one company into Chinese manufacturing. You have one company putting in more than five times as much money into manufacturing advanced technology as what is supposed to be a landmark piece of U.S. legislation. The situation that we're in is, is, is pretty weird. Uh, this is going to sound hyperbolic, but bear with me. The situation we, were, we are in right now would be like if, in the build-up to World War II, General Electric had said, you know what, we really like the United States, but we're actually very bullish on Imperial Japan. We think it's going to be a huge growth opportunity for us, and our metrics just aren't going to look the same if we wipe those off of our roadmap. Imagine if in the build-up to the Cold War, if you had had Westinghouse and other major U.S. technology companies say, ah, you know, we love manufacturing in the United States, but we actually think communist manufacturing is a really interesting experiment that we need to see through. And, uh, you know, we're not sure that we really want to take a side on this. Uh, The situation that we are in today is as dire or worse. The only reason that it seems ridiculous and the only reason it seems hyperbolic is because conflict has not actually broken out yet. If a conflict does break out, we're going to look at the current situation where we are hugely strategically and economically dependent at the highest levels of our technology industry and government on an adversary that is literally committing genocide, enslaving millions of people. Uh, We are going to look back on ourselves and feel really stupid. Now, the good news is that because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, defense is now the current thing. Uh, In the United States, there is this idea that any problem can be fixed at the last second with just a really incredible twist if we just come up with the right thing. But there's a lot of problems out there that cannot be solved that way. National security, economic policy, environmental policy, these are things that require non-political, bipartisan agreement on the problem decades before it becomes a really big problem. Those are not things that are acceptable current things. Uh, Shape rotation, this is an acceptable current thing to debate. Uh, Whether or not Will Smith was wrong to, uh, to, 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 wrong to take the slap, or if he's just you know, uh, a representative of warrior culture, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a fair debate to have. The idea of the United States having a military that is strong enough to deter conflict should not be in that category. Um, so why is, it too, why is it too late to care about defense now at this exact moment in time? Why is it too late for everybody to suddenly change their minds? Uh, well, a few things. One, you go to war with the tools that you have, not the tools that you wish you had or the tools that you start working on when things become a problem. If you look at the weapons that were given to Ukraine, they were built in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, $40 billion plus worth of them. And for all their differences, 
Defense is one of the few things that Republicans and Democrats alike have realized transcends the partisan divide. On one level, it's obviously very bad that we don't have more modern weapons to give to Ukraine. But on the other, it shows a level of foresight and planning that we've been stockpiling and building these legacy weapon systems for decades explicitly for a situation like today, which has been war-gamed war out to the nth degree. Imagine if the Department of Defense had done nothing to prepare for war for 40 years. And then as soon as war broke out, they started tweeting a lot and changed their profile pictures to Ukraine flag and then started saying, you know, we, we stand with Ukraine. Uh, the, the people who are actually tasked with solving these problems are, uh, they generally have good planning, but there's only so much they can do without good technology. Um, so, uh, I want to reiterate, if you only start building now, you've lost the chance to deter war from happening. That's the real purpose of the defense industry. It's not to fight wars. It's not to win wars. It's to prevent wars from happening. Wars happen when one or both sides misestimate their probability of winning. If both sides agree that one side or the other is going to win, typically you end up with diplomatic resolution. It's when both sides disagree about the possibility of winning that conflict actually, actually breaks out. And so if you actually want to prevent conflict from happening in the first place, you have to get involved well ahead of time. If you get involved after conflict breaks out, like so many companies have, you're ensuring that you're only going to be a part of the killing. You're only going to be a part of the bloodshed. You're only going to be a part of the war. You're not going to be a part of preventing the war from happening in the first place. So I would argue that people in the technology industry need to work on defense, not because it's the current thing, but because it's the right thing. Okay, I cut it off here because it then starts going into some Silicon Valley drama. For those of you who care about it, check it out. It's very entertaining, but ultimately not very important. Happy 4th of July!